Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday evening, on a very special Tuesday evening. It's the 2-22-22, supposedly a very significant date. I don't know for any other reason other than today was the day that some people had predicted the attack on Ukraine would happen. In fact, whatever attack did happen on this particular day that they predicted. Of course, it had been just the latest incursion of what was an eight-year battle now that Ukrainians have been fighting against the Russians. But today was very different. Today saw a very resolute United States come out in defiance against uh, Russia, imposing these very tough sanctions and just the first tranche of, of sanctions, which will, in fact, be getting worse and worse as the situation intensifies, if it does intensify. And I want to uh, welcome Michael McKay, our sort of resident Ukrainian analyst, back to the show. Michael, thank you very much for being here from Ottawa. Thank you, sir. And Eric Garland is here, back on Narrative. How are you, Eric? Doing great. I have to apologize. Uh, my voice, as you can hear, is a little uh, off today. I'm a little bit sleepy, <clears throat> and maybe it's because I've been up so many hours all night long worrying about our friends in Ukraine. Uh, we will, in fact, talk to one of them. I recorded an interview with Yevgen Fedchenko, who's in Kiev, and we'll play back his interview in just a few minutes. But, you know, I, I have to say, just to start us off here, maybe somewhat provocatively, that somewhere in an alternative universe, somewhere, you know, a President Trump readied a full U.S. military response to Russia's attacks on Ukraine. You, you know, Trump would have undoubtedly launched us into World War III by now. And that's, you know, in some way, just a reminder today how lucky we are to have a truly great president in the White House, in Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. You know, he is truly a remarkable leader, and it's certainly a remarkable leader at this kind of stuff. I've been calling it diplomatic jiu-jitsu, but what he's pulled off in the last few weeks is really quite remarkable. It's like jiu-jitsu while playing 3D chess with an arm tied behind his back and blindfolded and still knocking it out of the ballpark. It's unbelievable how he's been able to paint Putin into a corner and really leave the world startled at how unified NATO has become. The very thing that uh, Putin was trying to avoid has in fact become the reality of his actions. And I think that's just a remarkable testament to this leader, Joe Biden. I know there's people on Fox News who are out there saying, you know, they're supporting Russia, which I just can't believe. I mean, I can't believe that's actually happening in our day and age. But I hope they come to their senses soon and realize what a great leader we have in Joe Biden, who's basically avoiding a world war through the actions he's taken over the last few weeks. Uh, and Michael, maybe you want to tear us off some thoughts on how he's done in the last few weeks. Yeah, I've been really impressed by President Biden, especially the announcement that he made today. And we noticed that his administration has been very public about what they're doing. You know, he said early on, we're going to call out what we see the Russians doing. And that's why they've been making these announcements about troop movements and deploying and so on and saying, you know, the kind of thing that most administrations would keep secret. We say this is preparation for an offensive, for a further invasion of Ukraine. And they describe the details about it and they do it publicly and they show the evidence, you know, and they got the European allies to see it and agree with it. Even countries like France and Germany that uh, didn't want to believe it uh, for various reasons, and they you know, had to come on side. So he did that. He reunified the NATO alliance in the face of this insidious attempt to weaken it and say, oh, we want Russia put forth its so-called security demands, which were really about that. So he brought that together. And the other thing that President Biden has done is he's brought the American people along as well as he is able, given the very complex and divergent points of view that are there. And I made an observation earlier that I think 
the comparison that we need to make isn't so much, you know, with presidents in more living memory, but with the kind of stand that uh, President Roosevelt took in the run-up and at the start of World War II. It's mm, interesting. Um, my view is that you know Roosevelt had to navigate a very difficult and you know oppositional environment in the United States, where there was a strong isolation movement in the 1930s, and that any idea of American involvement, let's say Japanese aggression in the Asia Pacific, so you know, and what does his administration do? Actually, sanctions, which was a, an effective curb for a time on Japanese aggression, and then when Germany invaded Poland and uh, Britain and France declared war. He was not in a position at that point to join with the Allies, even though they wanted him to. And you know, Churchill was saying, you know, we need help. You know, let's work together and save France. Well, France, in fact, was not saved. It was occupied. But Biden did what, sorry, Roosevelt. You see, I'm making the comparison. Did what he could do, and it was lend-lease. It was, uh, okay, we've got hundreds of ships and the Royal Navy is in a fight to the death in the Atlantic. And if they lose that war, Britain is out, they lose. And that war was a six-year battle, but it was eventually won. And the start point was largely helped by that. Anyway, so I see Biden as navigating the very difficult landscape that he's got to face and achieving a remarkable unity, both within the United States and with American allies. And uh, don't think it's, it isn't noticed in Ukraine where it matters. Very, very well said. That press conference before uh, we got to air tonight, uh, the two foreign ministers, you know, in, doing an incredible job of just laying it out plainly. But also the Secretary of State receiving a lot of credit, as was Biden, by the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister, just in terms of praising the enormous effort that the U.S. has done and the offensive, really, that they've laid out to stop Putin. Just to review quickly, uh, we might as well do this with you, Eric, here. The sanctions against VEB, one of the biggest banks that Putin relies on, plus the military bank of Russia, um, there's $80 billion in assets apparently attached to all of those, plus freezing government access to, <coughs> I think, sovereign funds. I'm not quite sure how that works, but uh, you can explain that. Sovereign debt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then also Lincoln cancelling his summit with Lavrov. That's clearly an indication that diplomacy has reached its final point here, or at least for now. And then we also saw the biggest thing news today, which must have really hit Putin the hardest, is the freezing of Nord Stream 2, the very important gas line that Putin needs to go from Russia to Germany. That looks like it's a no-go from the Germans. It looks like the Americans will back that up. And just before we got on tonight as well, uh, Justin Trudeau announcing the first round of sanctions from Canada. So, you know, it certainly seems like a global effort. It's unmistakable and very quick. Uh, tell us a little bit more about these sanctions, Eric. Well, we're hitting them in the pocketbook. I mean, that's, uh, you know, as uh, Michael McKay is pointing out, uh, that's often a, a prelude to war. And it's a very effective one, especially if you need to buy more stuff to go to war, like anything, petroleum, you know, the raw materials, uh, you'll probably need some money. And, you know, we've, of course, been ratcheting sanctions up on Russia for their uh, aggressive behavior solidly since 2014, especially after the invasion of Crimea and the initial invasions of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. 
And uh, here we're going straight for Putin's inner circle. You mentioned Venetia Economic VEB, VTB, and not only the multiple cases here, it's not just the CEO of the bank, but in one case, you know, his father who's in Russian intelligence. This is really Putin's inner circle. And another vo- point on VEB there is um, the CEO of VEB met with Jared Kushner during the transition. That was for those of us who are kind of analysts of the whole Trump-Russia thing, that was kind of what we call in the business a clue. That's a very technical term. But when you have a Russian intelligence officer who's running Putin's favorite bank and he's meeting with somebody's son-in-law before they go into the Oval Office openly, stupidly, that's a clue. So probably the biggest thing there, that list, and I'm glad you brought it out, was sanctioning um, Russian sovereign debt. People need to understand what American U.S. Treasury sanctions are. If we put an institution or an individual on that list and you're caught doing business with them, we'll sanction you too. Mm. So we're talking about Russia can no longer raise money through sovereign debt. They can no longer issue a bond, you know, or their version of a treasury bill to global markets for capital. Hmm. So that's a big deal. Yeah. We're choking Putin financially. I want to show people a little bit here. Well, this is what the VEB list looks like. I mean, it's a lot more than just VEB. It's uh, 25 different associated entities. And you can uh look down that list, uh, you know, VEB leasing, VEB capital, VEB engineering. There's a couple of investment projects that have been frozen. The uh, LLC resorts Zolotto Colza. I don't even know what that is, but a real estate and construction company. You're looking at financial company as well located in Russia, business management firm. Uh, You know, this is not, this has been thought out, obviously. It wasn't just pulled out of a hat. It was very carefully designed to hit him where it hurts and also to hit his most important oligarchs because it includes things like the Baikal Center, a construction company located in Russia, an infrastructure company located in Russia, a financial company located in Russia. This is pretty widespread. Certainly not what he wanted to face. It takes away a lot of their energy and a lot of their justification for any incursion or any escalation of attacks. So in fact, it's been a critical difference this time around has been this ability to identify and notify the public about these disinformation efforts by the Kremlin. It's a big difference. Yeah, exactly. And uh, compared to 2014, we already know the narratives in the ocean, we already know all media organizations participating in this. But the difference actually was that at this moment, uh, Disinformation was spread not only by Russian media organizations, but it was spread by Putin himself. I don't know if you've seen his uh, yesterday's uh, actual rant about Ukraine, where he was complaining for uh, you know long period of time, and it was all a big historical fake constructed in his head. So it's not only about creation of pretext, but it's also we see that those fakes became a part of his mindset mm. and it's absolutely kind of mind-blowing because you realize that he lives in an absolutely parallel universe and it's absolutely not rational in terms of approach to the policy making it's not based on any knowledge on any you know historical knowledge or political knowledge so it's just an invention in his head and if we can imagine that we talk about the president of a nuclear country who can push the button any moment and, you know, all the world will be just ruined, you know, let's actually give you the idea in kind of what dire straits Ukraine actually is now.
Absolutely, because he came across deranged. I mean, he does not, didn't seem like he was connecting with, with reality at all or had a, really an appreciation for what really has happened in the recent past. And uh, that is quite scary because, you know, as you point out, he's got a lot of power. The man has control of one of the world's biggest armies and nuclear weapons. And most of that army is circling around Ukraine right now. And we still don't know what he's going to do. I happen to believe that he is probably not going to go that much further than he has, but we don't know that for sure. His plans seem to have been much greater. I think the efforts of the entire global community, but especially the American president's uh, attempt to you know, paint Putin into a corner has been very successful. And uh, certainly the uh, sanctions issued today directly hitting VEB and also hitting the military bank are, are tough. And then Nord Stream, which is such an important factor for him, really, when he looks at where he is today versus yesterday, $80 billion of assets he can't really get to. He can't access foreign exchange and his big gas project to Europe. That doesn't look like it's going ahead. What did he get? He got the same thing he had yesterday. He was basically occupying these territories anyhow. Absolutely. It's very difficult to predict what the next stage of what his next steps might be. But uh, at least we know what uh, Ukraine's uh, next steps would be. Uh, just, I was watching a briefing by uh, Secretary of State and Ukrainian Foreign Minister, and uh, Mitrofaleva uh, said that we have actually two plans. Plan A is to use all diplomatic means to avert a bigger war, and Plan B is then to fight until we win. And uh, I guess uh, here I would second what you just said about the absolutely enormous uh, contribution of uh, U.S. government in uh, support Ukraine, in mobilizing other partners in Europe and outside for Ukraine's support, its diplomatic and military support, which is very, very important because they cannot be separated at this stage. And also at a kind of a private level, it gives Ukrainians a feeling that we're not alone. And again, it gives us more kind of high morale to take this fight. This is the most important thing. And... Uh, as I said, without U.S. support, first at revealing uh, Russian plans and then helping to debunk their fake pretexts and uh, doing all these um, types of uh, you know, shuttle diplomacy and uh, phone diplomacy. That's amazing. I mean, for Ukrainians, that's, that's a huge thing. And uh, we feel it and we appreciate it. You know, it's also uh, remarkable because, of course, this is exactly what Putin was trying to not achieve. He was trying to achieve a breakup of NATO. He was trying to achieve distance between the Ukrainians and the Americans. And in fact, he got the exact opposite in response. He got a unified NATO and a very, very thoughtful and smart strategy. And, you know, the escalation strategy is basically what they've got where they will continue to layer on. And they've told him exactly which banks are next. So he knows. He knows what's next on the list, you know, and so he's aware of what happens if he does one more move and it gets worse and worse and worse for him. And I think that's very smart. I know there was disagreement about whether they should have had sanctions before the invasion. I think that now is kind of moot. I don't think it matters anymore. I think what matters now is that the sanctions are there and that he knows that they will escalate dramatically if anything else happens. So he's really in a very tough position. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, sanctions is a uh, very, very important part of this package. But another kind of a huge change, which I noticed in the attitude towards this, that what Ukraine was telling since 2014 now is kind of taken and granted already by major international players that Russia and Putin himself are not approaching the situation from a rational point of view. He's absolutely derailed. 
irrational. And so you just cannot, you know, sit with him on the table and negotiate something and then expect that he would commit to that. Mm-hmm. And that was the expectation of the world community. And we've heard from many leaders who've been repeating that probably it's part of Ukraine's problems that we cannot sit with them, you know, and negotiate. So probably it's something wrong about Ukraine. And now mm-hmm. everybody is absolutely obvious. That's a not, not, it's not a normal situation. You're not dealing with kind of a normal uh, actor, uh, and you need to find a very, very special uh, hybrid approach because he is using hybrid approaches to fight in Ukraine and fighting the uh, international community. And definitely the answers uh, should be also coming from a hybrid realm as well. And that works for him. That's what he understands. And I'm always quoting Lenin who was saying that if you use violence, you know, and you put it into the bourgeoisie, and if it finds something hard, it stops, you know. Oh, yeah. If it finds something soft and mushy, we just go ahead with pushing it. That's exactly about Putin. And by the way, yesterday Putin was also mentioned that Lenin and Stalin many, many times in the day was saying that they created Ukraine. This is very kind of self-explanatory because he actually want to find his legitimacy in this continuity of uh, political uh, leadership, starting with the Russian Empire, which he wants to restore, the Lenin, Stalin. So all his worldview is absolutely backward-looking. And compared to Ukraine, where we want to look forward into the future, we want to get away from that reality, you know, from, from the past, because it was awful bloody past for Ukraine. Absolutely. We want to get away from this imperial experience, you know, and we just want to be independent. And uh, people are just saying, just leave us alone, you know, we Absolutely. want to be our life. Absolutely. And, you know, the other dangerous thing for Putin is that he doesn't have his people with him. It doesn't appear to me like the Russian people are interested in this war at all. And so, you know, if anything, this could really backfire because the other part of it is what the Ukrainians have learned is how powerful democracy is and how powerful independence is, you know, that's also catchy. And that could also catch in his own population if they view this war as a deranged war by a deranged leader. That's not going to go across well, I don't think, amongst his population either. Plus the sanctions around his oligarchs and, and all of that, that's, you know, those, those are going to hit hard. I know you have to go and I want to make sure you do go because uh, your uh, signal's already uh, a bit uh, slow tonight and I know it's very late at night there. But you have gonna, I really, uh, we wish you all the best, you know, the world is with you guys. We are all thinking of you. Couldn't really sleep thinking about you last night. So uh, I hope you get a good night's sleep, and I hope this resolves in the way it should. And I hope the madman from Moscow backs down as he should, uh, and that the world is united behind you. I hope that gives you a lot of strength as the day goes on. Yeah, thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much. That's Yevgeny Fedchenko uh, joining us from Ukraine, from Kiev. Well, I mean, that's just a powerful stuff hearing it from him, you know, hearing him uh, praise Biden and the efforts of the United States and how meaningful it is to him. Uh, you know, Michael, Yevgen, maybe you want to give us some reaction to that. Yeah, I think he expressed himself very well from the perspective Ukrainians have. You know, to put this into context, these are, this is coming after the last several weeks when Ukrainians have been, it's almost like, watching a live cast, seeing American military aircraft, also British uh, military aircraft, landing every single day in Kiev with weapons for the Ukrainian army. And these get a lot of coverage. And now 
again, the criticism, oh, it's not enough, it's not soon enough, but it's something they were not doing up until, you know, a few weeks ago, and it's still going on. There is a air bridge right now, and it starts in the United States, and it uh, stops off in Britain, and it goes all the way to Kiev. And uh, we know that these weapons are in the hands of frontline troops now, and it has a tremendous deterrent effect because of what these weapons are, because they're going to the defender. So that's the context of this. Uh, he also talked about his very important work about disinformation, and I've been looking at that extensively. And I just have to say that the thing about disinformation is not just the cleverness of it. It's actually very crude. It's the volume of it. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is a real stress on him and his team. It's dealing with this massive effort. All of these attempts are crude and with the slightest effort, they're uh, disproven. Mm. But it is this mm. effort of doing it. And I've been looking at some of it, but I can't keep up with all of it, <laughs> you know. And behind it all is a human tragedy. The Russians are making innocent people suffer uh, because of this. And I'll, I'll just give you one simple example of this that I was looking at today. You may have heard that the Russian occupation authorities in the east of Ukraine forcibly displaced people from the occupied territories and made them go to Russia. So they made maybe a hundred or more thousand people go there, but there was no place for them to stay when they had there. This was all just for the TV cameras. I know, saw that. And I've heard from people I know who did this. I know someone who hunkered down, they hid in their apartment so they wouldn't be snatched up and do this because they knew if, as long as they had their flat, they would have somewhere. And they had heard of people who had been sent there and they're just dropped across in some town on, in Rostov uh, region. Well, today, one family who had been forcibly displaced, they were from a frontline community in Luhansk Oblast, and the Russians burned down their house as a provocatia because wow. it was close to the front, and they wanted to fake that the Ukrainians had done it. Um, That's just so and sick. And so now they're homeless because they, they could not get away. So this is the kind of thing that last happened in the Second World War with the deportations of Poles and uh, people from the Baltic countries and Ukrainians to the east. And also when the Nazis invaded, they became east workers and they were sent there. And these atrocities were committed. So the scale is smaller, but the information space is more warped in our mm -hmm. information age. You know, the Russians are right there with the fake and... It just takes a little bit of effort to say, well, no, that's not true at all. You set fire to that house. You were the one shelling the community and just made it look like the Ukrainians were doing it. But it's the volume of these mm. attempts and the human tragedy. Well, it does seem like we've become a lot more literate around this, these issues, Eric. I mean, certainly we know our way around disinformation a lot more than we did even four years ago in the United States. Certainly for the Ukrainians, it's been longer. Absolutely. I mean, both the Ukrainians and the people in the Baltic states. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the hot houses for the Russian military science as far as espionage and uh, disinformation goes. First, it's Russia. They do it to their own people. And then their next proximate neighbors. And then the one after that. And then they go wherever they can with it. And they're constantly refining. I think Michael's point about how it's the sheer volume of it. I think that's why sanctions are going to be such a powerful deterrent here. Because, again, who invented the internet? I'm forgetting. Was that in Vermont? <laughs> I don't even know um, the answer to that question anymore. <laughs> There's so much. Silicon Valley in Vladivostok? I yeah. forget. Oh, uh, the United States. That's right. It's um, a little complicated, <laughs> that answer. Yeah, Switzerland, too. Yeah. CERN and, you know, yeah. Tim Berners-Lee. 
but a lot of American stuff. But we don't need Russia for that. It's like, we don't need your fossil fuels. We don't need your spies. We can shut your dollar bills off and shut your internet off. Uh, and, this, and, 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 and to that point, Eric, you're, you're talking about the, these dealing with the volume of disinformation and why the current sanctions are so good. And the problem of the, you know, dealing with every little incident and being like whack-a-mole and the difficulty of playing that game. Well, if you look mm -hmm. at sanctions earlier, they were all targeted sanctions. For example, let's talk about things like construction companies. Uh, mm -hmm. Prior to this week, the sanctions were against construction companies, for example, involved in building the illegal Kerch Bridge. This is the bridge that goes from Russia to Russian-occupied Crimea, Ukraine. Very good. Absolutely. Sanction those companies. Sanction the banks. And, oh, the, uh, the two brothers in Russia, the uh, Rosenbergs, who uh, financed the whole thing. Absolutely. But that's just one thing. That's just one aspect of Russia's war effort. And you can't slice and dice that and keep up with it all. So you just have to say, no, it doesn't have to be directly involved with Crimea or this. It's a Russian bank. It's an economy built for war. And we have to go at it in broad strokes or we're not going to have the effect we want. Mike, you used to say, as you said, is to deter a greater war. You were monitoring what was going on along the border there today. Have we seen an actual increase in uh, Russian troops entering these two regions? Yes, we have. We've also seen the forced conscription of local people who have no military training and are being sent to the front as cannon fodder. So these are people being sent to be victims. Ukrainians who speak Russian. You speak Russian. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to be shot by the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians are taking no aggressive action whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But they're there to be cannon fodder for these provocations. But have we seen more uh, Russian movement across the border? The answer is yes. I mean, I look at something. It's not just uh, troops. Look at the sheer volume of artillery mm -hmm. that Russia has been firing in the last week. Mm -hmm. You know, it is just staggering, these attacks. And you cannot keep doing that without a constant supply of ammunition, of uh, fuel for your trucks and your self-propelled artillery. There's just, there's a tremendous effort that needs to go to sustain this. I mean, periodic shelling, which they had been doing up until a few weeks ago, that can be sustained with a minimum of effort. But there needs to be an ongoing and massive effort to keep this level of bombardment, this level of attacks today, for the first time, actually, it might have started a, a couple of days ago. The Russians are are firing rockets again from uh, multiple launch rocket systems. They had not been doing that for four years. But so this is a distinction a we should make that they're you know even though the threat was that they were going to send peacekeepers, whatever they were calling them, marked with uh, the, the proper Russian uniforms or whatever it is. We haven't actually seen that, have we yet? I haven't seen video yet. No, we've seen Russian more of what we've seen. Yeah. we've seen mercenaries like from Wagner Group and others. We've mm. seen conscripts. We've seen Russian soldiers. They come to the border in buses. They take off their uniforms. They put on a different uniform with a different patch. Their passports are taken away from them. And now they are soldiers of the LPR, soldiers of the DPR, you know, but they're still Russian soldiers. So mm -hmm. we've just seen more of that. So it's more of the kind of what I've described today as colonial troops. That's mm -hmm. the best understanding of this army. They're Russian soldiers, right. but who they are, they're not necessarily home troops, they're colonial troops. And it seems that Putin has decided to rely on them as much as he can, because he's hoping to go under the radar with this. 
when he has had to use more regular troops, like at the Battle of Ilovaisk and Devotsevi, it's gone badly for him because the world has noticed. I mean, Ukrainians have been able to capture, you know, regular Russian soldiers and say, here, these, you know, these are Russian soldiers. They're from Rostov, uh, yeah, Rostov or someplace like that. And, and here, here's their passports and stuff. So he'd rather not do that. So he's doing more of what he has been doing primarily since he invaded this part of Ukraine in uh, April 2014, and that's more of these what I call colonial troops. Now, we haven't all well, as far as I can tell, seen whether he's going to try and take over the entire two provinces. You know, there's Luhansk and Donetsk, but is he going to take over just the separatist parts that are already captured, which is about a third of each of these provinces, or is he going to try to take over the entire area involving Donetsk and Luhansk? Do you, do he you would know- like to... He would like to take over the whole thing because, for example, his proxies, the puppets he put into place in the Donetsk and Luhansk, I consider them Gauleiters, you know, to use the German term, because they're administrators for the Russian occupation administration. They have made public statements that their fake republics consist of the entire oblast, the whole region. Mm-hmm. So that includes areas now occupied. So if you look at your map there, it's the reddish bits above your purple bits. So that's mm-hmm. the whole oblast, and they claim all of that. Right. And now these proxies would never say anything, not a word, if Putin didn't approve it. So we right. know that is his policy. And where the line is now just happens to be where the Russian invasion got stopped by Ukrainian defenders mm-hmm. by the early part of 2015. So it's just mm-hmm. kind of where the front settled. Seems like and, a significant and, uh, difference too, if he takes the entire region versus just the areas that he has, you know, just up to where he's been now, which yeah, is about a third it's of the difference region. between so, invading what he's already invading mm-hmm. and invading more. So this is where we could see us the, the next, you know, confrontation happen. If he tries to push further into Luhansk and into Donetsk, we might see Ukrainians feeling like they need to resist. And if they do, yeah, and resist, I've always said, pay attention to this region, this mm-hmm. region that's broadly known as Donbass. That's mm-hmm. where the war is happening. That's where the extension of the war will happen from. It's right. the east of Ukraine. They're not suddenly just going to launch into Kiev for no good reason. They would look for some reason out of the Donbass first before. Not unless there was some reason for it or a yeah. collapse, because that would be another open sign. Mm-hmm. So, and even uh, still, if they were trying to go off to a place like Kiev. I've been reading some analysis, so this is, it's not an easy place to get if you're a, an army. You know, the, the Ukrainian army is pretty big, 250,000 people and uh, very motivated. They're not interested in being occupied. You know, even if they're throwing everything that they can at the Ukrainians, they're still outnumbered. The Russians will still be outnumbered. And uh, getting places like Kiev is not going to be easy. It's a, it's a bit of a fortress. Absolutely. And, you know, conventional wisdom about military operations is that the attacker needs a substantial numeric advantage to have any hope, or or at least a localized numerical advantage. And that is not true for the Russians. You know, even if they have, what was the American assessment recently, as many as 160,000 troops, but that's all together. That's Mm -hmm. in Belarus, that's in the Western part of the Russian Federation, that's in the East of Ukraine, that's in Crimea. There's like 6,000 troops in Moldova, by the way, occupied. That's 160,000 altogether. That's not an invade all of Ukraine and occupy Ukraine kind of an army. Especially when you know, people are not going to be excited about being occupied. A place like yeah. Kiev is the size of Chicago. You're going to try yeah. occupy the Chicago? That's not feasible with 160,000 you know, people. Ukraine is the largest country that is wholly within Europe. Yeah. And 
You know, I saw recently a map that uh, where they just overlaid Ukraine on North America mm -hmm. just to give people a context. Mm -hmm. And it went from, you know, uh, Toronto down to like Virginia. And then it went from New York and the Western part was somewhere around Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. You know, it's a big place. There. It's a big place. And it's, it's a full big of people place. are not going to be happy to see the Russians show up. So, you know, this is yep. a fool's gamble to try and attack anything further than these two Eastern provinces. I mean, it seems like this is the most he could hope for is these two yeah. provinces. Yes, and, it's a fool's gamble, but is, is Putin a, a fool who will gamble? <laughs> That's what we don't know. Go ahead, Eric. Well, you know, there's 29 NATO countries and uh, we represent, what, a billion people-ish or, you know, a certain chunk of the, the entire globe's economy. Nobody's giving Russia weapons. Nobody's going to Venmo Russia cash. In fact, we're shutting their money off. Well, Tucker Carlson um, might, you know, Tucker might be there for them. Well, that's a great place for him to invest. I fully support Tucker Carlson finally just putting on the jersey. Yeah, he, he can give them all their money. Yeah. Meanwhile... France, the UK, the Netherlands, and you know Canada and the United States, we're going to give those 260,000 Ukrainians and also the grandmothers with Kalashnikovs. I don't know if you guys saw that uh, photo op. They have you know this like 75 year old woman who's like in gear, you know, on the deck with an AK-47. She's like, your mother would have done it for you. I'm doing it for my kids. I'm like, do not mess with any country where Granny is on the deck with a Kalashnikov. Yeah. Because it's not going to go well. First of all, places as big from Toronto to Roanoke, Virginia, apparently. Yeah. And the grandmothers are on the ground. That never goes... Ask the Russians about Finland, 1940. How'd that go? What was like 15 Finnish dudes, you know, with sniper rifles and like hatchets? Yeah. I mean, the it's Russians hard to take Ukraine. that far in. I can't imagine it's going to be an easy fight for anybody. So I mentioned Trump at the top of the show because, you know, I just imagined what he would be like as a wartime leader. But uh, he's not stayed quiet. According to Hugo Lowell of The uh, Guardian, he, apparently Trump has said that he's praising Russia, saying Putin's move to annex parts of Ukraine is genius as he parrots Kremlin propaganda that the military invasion is peacekeeping. I mean, you know, and, when, when people support and. this guy, it just – I. I don't understand how any American supports uh, Russia over Ukraine in this instance. How, how can people not see that he's directly parroting talking oh. points that come from the Putin regime itself? And, you know, I've been seeing that since 2015 when I noticed Trump saying this stuff about Crimea. And I thought, Crimea? What's this guy I've heard about this TV show? And what's mm -hmm. he know about Crimea? But then I heard what he said. Now, it was rambling. It made no sense but it touched upon the points that I've been hearing from the Russian propagandists. And here, this, what was that brief statement? Putin is a genius and Russian troops are peacekeeping. Well, yeah. nobody calls Russian troops peacekeepers anywhere except the Russians themselves. Right, right. So, you know, it's crazy. Um, it's unbelievable. It's, you know, it's, how can it's, people not see this? This is a guy who's going to be running for presidency again. It's just, just stunning. It's, it was 10 to 20 years or more of propaganda to turn you know, could really work on the American conservatives and some Canadian conservatives and some, and well, British nobility, but that was with cash. That's yeah. different. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but the American conservatives, you know, there was this whole, oh, you know, the Russians are defenders of European values. Well, you know, that, that line took a long time to set in. And Michael, your point about how it's the sheer volume of this, 
there's a certain fatigue factor cognitively that when you just lay these things out over and over and over and over again, they really set in. It, they're hard to disabuse people of those notions. And that's how you ended up in 2015 and 16 with a presidential candidate in the United States. And our, our candidates are never supposed to be making comments about of foreign leaders, politics ends at the borders. And that's when our State Department picks up traditionally. Yeah. But this guy's going, oh, I like Putin better than I like Obama. That's when a lot of people in my business are like, oh boy, we're in for it now. Well, um, that's you, different. You can draw a direct line from, you know, Trump's campaign and Manafort to Yunichenko's campaign with with Manafort. And, Yanukovych. Sorry, thank you. I'm so yeah. sorry. You know, those are the same players. They got, you know, Putin wanted a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine. He, he got it. He wanted a pro-Russian leader in the United States. He got it. And now a few years later, even though we all know that he is a Russian asset and basically a Russian puppet, you know, some people are still considering him a legitimate candidate for, for running for office in, in this country. And yet we know that he's a Russian puppet. And here he is parroting these talking points from Putin as we're at war, essentially, with Putin and Russia. And you've got this right-wing media landscape and ecosystem, which is just supporting him by doing exactly the same stuff. But let's make fun of Vladimir Putin here. What did he get for all that? So he stands up this uh, crappy real estate developer from Queens yeah. who'd been talking, been, you know, Trump had been parroting Russian talking points since the 80s. Right. So that wasn't all that new. But what was new was him getting the entire Russian state behind him to try and make him president of the United States, which mm. worked. It was no doubt the most successful intelligence operation in the history of the business. Unbelievable. Right. What a catastrophe. This is the end of modern <laughs> Russia. They're doomed. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't like to be uh, overly um, pessimistic about these things, but what did Vladimir Putin get for this? His entire network of mob and espionage around the world was exposed. His partnership with China was exposed. China's partnership with him was exposed, which has upset the apple cart to all this. I mean, it's a disaster. You yeah, make such a good point. Couldn't they, happen to nicer people. They were going to come out of this Olympics. You know, I, in my opinion, they had three things they were trying to achieve out of these Olympics. First, they're very successful Olympics, which was not. They were tempting to come out with Bitcoin as being a huge new success thing around the world. It's not. It's failing miserably. And then they were going to try to get Ukraine for Putin. And it's just been a disaster. So their three big goals coming into this, you know, this, the culmination of their big operation against America has been nothing but a disaster, especially in these closing, in these closing moments. And, you know, again, not to, you know, to spend too much time saying how wonderful Putin, uh, Biden is, but boy, has he done a great job at, in each of these instances, making China and Russia look much weaker than they had intended to be at this time in their plan. We should take some oh, comments uh, from people. Expose the Saudis too. Yeah, <laughs> and the UAE, and, and um, Venezuela, and Iran, and yeah. Mexico. I mean, basically, all the bad guys screwed it, themselves by hooking up with idiots. Indeed. By the way, on the chat here, Karen is saying, "Is there a sanction that Putin can put in place or retaliate?" In other words, instead of a, just an invasion, is there something he could do? I mean, there's certainly cyber. The capabilities that they have in cyber are tremendous. And they could do a cyber tantrum that could take down a whole parts of the world. Would it last for very long? I don't think so. And will we have better cyber responses than they do? Probably. But nevertheless, that's an option that he for sure has. What do you guys think? They could keep well, us I from think... having Maria Butina in our country. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep her, please. <laughs> yeah. But uh, 
the uh, what is the problem with Putin is he he doesn't have equivalent tools in his toolbox to counter this. Right. And I look at what happened with the initial round of sanctions in 2014. I think a lot of people forget that Russia did impose sanctions, but they did it on things like imports on food from the EU. And they would have these TV shots of bulldozing apples in a dump. You know, hey, we're crushing EU uh, food. Yeah. About, well, you're you're taking away food from Russia. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and people got ways around it. They would relabel uh, import of fish and say. It came from Belarus, and of course, everyone knew the joke because Belarus is a landlocked country. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like well, ocean fish is going to come from there. But everyone knew the joke, and so that was it. It was this asymmetric warfare. It was a measure of sanctions that actually harmed themselves. Right. But of course, Putin doesn't care about the Russian people. It was all symbolic. So he doesn't have equivalent tools. You know, and he still doesn't he can, care about the Russian people. At the end of the day, like, you know, he, watching he him, can stop you and me from opening an account in a Moscow bank. Yeah. He can certainly do that, can't he? Yeah. Well, <laughs> big <Russia> deal. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> so, are you okay? I'm going to have to come I'm okay. Yeah. I'm fine. But you want that no Russian more, bank account? No more summer vacation in Vladivostok. <laughs> no more no Vladivostok. Yeah. Oh, I can't take a vacation God. in Murmansk. That's true. <laughs> These are sad things, you know. No, these are sad things for some people. Um, I'm going to just leave everyone with some uh, thoughts from uh, the president of the United States, because as he issued uh, on Twitter earlier on, but uh, he says, amongst other things, today, in close coordination with our allies and partners, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to yesterday's actions. We will continue to escalate sanctions as Russia escalates. That's an important line there, of course. Uh, the full blocking of sanctions on two large banks, which we've discussed earlier. And that he says, that means we've cut off the Russian government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade its new debt in our markets or European markets. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we will also be imposing sanctions on Russian elites and their family members. They share in their corrupt gains of the Kremlin's policies and should share in the pain as well. And because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. And uh, certainly I think the biggest thing there besides the Nord Stream 2 is, is the kids are about to be sanctioned. The oligarch children, the spawn of oligarchs, they're about to get hit by sanctions. And I don't think that's going to make anyone very happy in all those, uh, those nice fancy homes that they all have. <laughs> One of the most effective things that happened in 2014 and unfortunately didn't last was when the Russian oligarchs couldn't use their credit cards. Mm -hmm. And if that had held, the war could have stopped back then. Unfortunately, the credit card companies relented, but it, that's where you got to hit them. It's well, got to be that personal. They're going to feel it again when, you know, the credit card stopped working for little Sasha and Boris and whomever, uh, you know, when they stopped working. And they've got to go to their fancy schools and their fancy hideout in London or wherever, the fancy clubs and the credit cards don't work. Oh, boy, are we going to hear a different story then? Well, and to take the vacation joke, which is not really a joke, I mean, nobody, this whole what can they sanction us on and we don't want to go there, they don't want to go there either. Right. <laughs> These guys are all, they all want to be in the south of France. They want to be on the Amalfi Coast. They want to be in London at nightclubs. Yeah. You know, they're expensive. That we build, the EU builds, the democracy builds. Yeah. They don't want to be in some hellhole warehouse, rock gut. Perfect example. There was a brief period of time when Russians were not able to go to the Turkish resorts that they usually like to go to because there was that mm -hmm. bit of the spat between Turkey and Russia at one point. Wow, that just 
landed like a bomb in Russia because, you know, there are not equivalent warm spots in Russia that are comparable right. uh, to like a Turkish resort for them. You know, that was, you know, a place to take a cheap holiday for lots and lots of people. And so that had a huge effect. So if that happens again, yeah, it makes so if, a difference. If you're a member of the rich kids of uh, Russia, rich kids of oligarchs on Instagram, take your shots tonight because uh, you might be drying up. You might not have as, <laughs> as many good photos to post as of tomorrow when those sanctions land. Let's leave it there for tonight. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here tonight. Michael McKay and Eric Garland, thanks for being here. Uh, Michael, M-H, tell me everyone again, at M-H-M-C-K. Is that right? That's right. And you can find at Eric Garland. Uh, anything else you want to share, Eric or, or Michael, with uh, the audience before we leave tonight? No, good, except uh, Slava Ukraina. Glory to Ukraine. Slava Ukraina. Oh, I like that. Well, on that note, have a good night, everyone. We'll see you again tomorrow where we have a special edition of the show. We are going to talk about the secret life of Elon Musk. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.